Take your Bibles and turn with me back to the book of Acts, chapter 17 this evening. We'll be doing something that I have never done before, and depending on how it turns out, may never do again. So, if you were with us last week, you may recognize that this is the passage that we preached from last week, and we'll be preaching from the same passage again this week. Last week, we looked predominantly at the message that Paul gave. And that's how most of us are feeling right now. Last week, we looked at the message that Luke records in Acts chapter 17 that Paul gave regarding in the gospel and how he reached out to those who had no understanding of the scriptures. Tonight, we're going to look at the same passage, but not looking at the message, but more looking at the methodology that Paul uses. Because we can have the right message, but we can be giving it the wrong way. And we can probably all think of a situation when we were in school where the teacher was trying to communicate a truth to us, to us that was a true message, but no matter how hard the teacher tried to communicate that message, it didn't sink into us, and maybe we had another teacher the next year explain the same truth, but from a different way, and it's like, oh, that makes sense now. And so when we are giving the gospel particularly in a society in which we find ourselves that is becoming more and more scripturally ignorant, how do we approach them with the same truth? The gospel hasn't changed, but we need to make sure that our method, the way that we're giving the gospel, is not turning them away. The gospel message itself will offend we don't have to offend with the way that we are presenting it. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 15. They that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and having received a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus, for to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. When he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection." And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would therefore, we would know therefore what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. 
Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and I beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed in the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord." If haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth that all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. When they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. And so Paul departed from among them. Father, as we look into your word this evening, I ask, Lord, that you would give us hearts and minds that are open and receptive to a familiar old, old story of the gospel. And yet, Lord, I just ask that you would help us as we are given opportunities daily to share the gospel with those around us, that we would take a page from Paul's book and that the way in which we give the gospel would not turn people off to the truth of it. We ask these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I said last week, we examined the content of Paul's message but tonight we're going to focus more so on the methodology that Paul uses that this passage brings to light. In order to understand the method, we need to first and foremost understand the audience and the setting. Okay, I will not give too much of a literature lesson today. I'll let Mrs. Lindbergh do that later when you're setting a scene in a novel, you need to figure out what the audience is. You need to figure out what the setting is. So we need to look into this passage. Who does Luke record for us, the audience and the setting? Because you can't separate the message from that original audience. Paul is going to do certain things here in Athens that he would not do in the synagogues, as we have seen. Athens symbolized the cultural, the intellectual, and the religious nerve center of the Greco-Roman world. 
And what we see in this passage, Luke is recording it for us to let us know that the gospel can penetrate the very heartland of urban pagan culture. You know, the good news of the gospel isn't just for religious people. The good news for the gospel is for the pagan, whether they live down the street from us or whether they live around the world from us. And as we've examined, as we've gone through this series, it's the power of the message of the gospel that brings results because it's God's word, not what we say. And we can find hope and security in knowing that God's message will perform his purposes. As Paul is going throughout the city of Athens, he's not so much impressed by the architecture or the learning that's there. He's not there as a tourist. Rather, Paul becomes deeply distressed. He becomes upset about the idolatry that is rampant throughout the city, upset about the religious pluralism that he sees there. And as we looked at last week, Paul's response to that idolatry, to the religious pluralism, to the immorality in the culture, was not to start a social media campaign or to boycott. His response was he was driven by love to give a message that a lost world needs to hear. And oftentimes we do, we look at the culture around us and the idolatry that is there, the godlessness that is in our culture can cause us as believers to become upset. And we need to be careful that we don't just become upset at the individuals who are worshiping in ignorance, as we'll see in this passage those who are blinded by the prince of the powers of this air, but those who need the truth of the gospel, truth that we have. Luke's focus in Acts chapter 17 is on Paul's encounter with the pagans, those who had no religious background, almost to the exclusion of his synagogue ministry. The immediate setting is at, in the meeting of the Areopagus, which we looked at last week. This is the supreme governing council in the city of Athens. They are the ones who had the responsibility for deciding what was true or not about religion. And Paul is brought before them and asked to explain these new teachings to them. Paul's not speaking to a bunch of ignorant dummies. He's speaking to the cream of the crop of the intellect. And as he's doing such, he addresses them in such a way, recognizing that they do have understanding. This powerful leading of citizens, he's brought before them. Paul is like the Greek philosophers going into the marketplace and publicly debating the intellectuals of Athens on their turf. We see in verse 17, he disputed with them in the market daily. He's not just waiting for people to come and ask him questions. He is intentionally going out and being active, giving the gospel to any who would hear. Disputing, having the idea of reasoning, 
being able to not just give out a list of memorized facts about the Bible, but being able to understand their arguments and to counter their arguments. The two main groups of philosophers that are the primary audience for this address are the Stoics and the Epicureans, and we'll look a little bit more at them later on. Paul is accused of introducing foreign gods into the Greek pantheon, introducing this new god, Jesus, and the feminine counterpart of Jesus, Anastasis or Anastasia, or we see it translated in English, the resurrection. This underscores the polytheistic perspective that is going to create serious hurdles for the Athenians to understand the gospel correctly. Luke is essentially recording in Acts chapter 17 a fundamental clash of worldviews. The Athenians had their worldview and it was ingrained and what Paul is bringing isn't just a different thought, it is a completely different worldview. And more and more, the worldview that we as believers are to have, based on the truth of God's word, based on the truth of God, ought to be coming in a conflict, in a clash with a worldview that says you're number one. Take care of yourself. And so Paul takes this occasion of a complete misunderstanding of his preaching to share the gospel in the very heart of Greek thought and culture. You know what Paul doesn't do when he's accused of teaching false gods? What are you guys, stupid? I'm not teaching new gods. No, he takes the opportunity to instruct them, to give them teaching, recognizing this is a foreign concept to them it may take them a little bit of time. I think oftentimes as believers, we're quick to dismiss someone who rejects the message after hearing it just once. When in reality, we should recognize if this is a completely different worldview, it's going to take multiple times. Without raising hands, I'd like to ask the question, how many of us were saved after we heard the gospel for the first time? Or did it take multiple hearings before our worldview was able to comprehend the truth of the gospel? The form and the style of the speech that Paul is going to give is adapted to the sophisticated Gentile audience. In contrast with the frequent use of language and quotations of the Greek Old Testament, that we've seen from Peter, that we've seen from Stephen, and even Paul in the synagogue, Paul is doing something completely different. The persuasive features that he uses are adapted to the mindset of those who are listening. He doesn't change the truth of the gospel, but he's able to be flexible enough to understand where his audience is and meet them where they are at. He starts with a similar structure in his rhetoric. 
In verses 22 and 23, his opening introduction that Greeks would have used to gain the hearing from the listeners. Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. He's identifying with them. I've been around the city. I've seen how you worship. I'm not just coming in cold turkey and presenting these truths to you. But I understand where you're coming from. You know, how well do we know the culture in which we live? Now, I'm not saying that we are to be a part of the culture in which we live. Jesus clearly tells us that we are in the world, but we are not to be of the world, not immersing ourselves and living like the world. But do we understand the culture in which we live, or are these millennials and Gen Xers just too weird for us to understand? We need to know our audience. We need to understand who is listening. And we need to be able to meet them where they are at. Following the Greek rhetoric, Paul then gives his thesis. Okay, here's what I desire for you to understand. This unknown God that you worship ignorantly, Paul says in verse 23b, I am going to declare him unto you. That's his thesis. And then in verses 24 through 29, he gives his arguments for his case, declaring who God is and his relationship to mankind. And if you want to know that in more detail, go ahead and listen to last week's message. Then he concludes with his concluding exhortation, attempting to persuade the audience to make the right course of action. We see this in verse 30. And it's very simple. Repent. As we said last week, nowhere does Paul in this message name the name of Jesus. Nowhere in this message does Paul explain to them that they are sinners. Does he try to convince them that they need forgiveness for that sin? He simply points out, here's the God that I'm explaining to you. Because you aren't worshiping him, that's enough to make you guilty in his eyes. Therefore, repent. He uses many of the same techniques that would have been used in the great Greek rhetoric. Okay? He uses the technique of insinuation or the insinuatio, a delaying tactic. Okay? If we remember, what is the question that Paul has brought before them for? Explain these new gods you're teaching. Explain Jesus and the resurrection. Paul doesn't get there right away. He doesn't start his answer with that. Instead, he delays the resurrection until the very end. You know, one of the things being a teacher has taught me is sometimes students will ask a question and they want a very simple answer right away. Yes or no? And one of the things that they absolutely hate me for doing is I don't give them that straight answer. You know, you work them through the thought process. Why are you doing this? 
because I'm the teacher and I say so. No, it's because this, this, this. Oh, I can see where you're coming from. Paul, who is this Jesus? Who is this resurrection? It's this because I say so. And if you don't get it, that's on you. I'm done. No, he explains to them, here's who God is. And when he gets to the end of it, yes, there are some who are still like, I don't get it. There are some who, Paul, let's talk more. And there are some who do accept the gift of salvation. They repent based on Paul's message. Paul, first of all, has to establish a rapport with them and build a foundation for understanding. But Paul also uses the technique of irony. This speech is laced with it. You have Paul before the Areopagus, the center of Greek intellect, and you have the recurring theme of human ignorance. You know, whom you worship ignorantly, him I declare unto you, or verse 30, the times of this ignorance God winked at. And this theme of ignorance was one that would not have been missed. The Areopagus would have been sitting there thinking, wait a second, Paul, I see what you're doing here. And he establishes points of contact using concepts of the Greek contemporaries of his time to establish points of contact with his hearers. We see him quoting from the pagan poets. You know, in him, or for we are all his offspring, is an inscription to the praise of Zeus. Paul is using their own poets and the concepts that they already have. Authorities that were already recognized by his audience in support of his argument about the relationship of mankind to the living God. Now, this does not mean that those pagan sources carry the same weight of authority for Paul as the scripture in his sermons to the Jews does. But it's giving Paul a point of contact and a point of reference with them. Paul can recognize the common ground with the writings of the pagans, using those common grounds as bridges to his audience without sanctioning the belief system that they belong to. Recognizing, okay, here's what your authorities say. Let's go ahead and start from here, but let's get you better understanding of it. Let's take this opportunity to teach you a better way. We see thirdly in this passage, the preaching to the Athenian intellectuals. It begins with an initial point of contact. Remember, this audience has no understanding of the scriptures to build on, let alone an understanding of Christ. Remember, when I was in college, it was still in the days where the cell phones were not very common. And so you had the room phones there. I think colleges nowadays, you don't have room phones anymore. But I remember my room phone ringing at about one o'clock in the morning. 
And it's like, who's calling you at 1 o'clock in the morning? And I answered the phone, and the individual on the other end started asking me questions about, wait, why are you in a room with a bunch of other guys? What are you doing? And it's like, okay, we're, we're not doing that because it's sin. The response was, well, what's sin? And this individual had absolutely no idea what the scriptures were. And it's like, listen, I'd love to talk to you more, but it's now 1.30 in the morning. I have classes in a few hours. Call me back later if you'd like to talk. Thanks, good night. But that's more and more common in the world in which we find ourselves, in our culture. People who don't have an understanding of the scriptures, and so yes, they're going to live like it. So we need to be able to understand where they're coming from and build those bridges. Paul begins with an introduction that establishes rapport and credibility. The currying of favor. You know, recognizing that these individuals have a form of religion. I see how religious you are in every way. I understand. I see that you are superstitious. You know, being respectful in his response and taking an approach that is not negative judgment. How could you guys be so stupid to worship rocks? What's wrong with you? No, he doesn't come across that way. He goes, I understand that you have religion. I understand that you're seeking for something. Let me show you what you're seeking for. He engages them further by highlighting a concrete example of their worship. You have this altar to an unknown God. That's who I'm going to declare to you. This identifies even further the religious need that his audience has. And he uses their worship of the unknown as a springboard to launch his message about the one true God who can be known because he has revealed himself. Paul begins where his audience is and he builds on as much common territory as possible, noting that he does not demean their belief system. He does not condemn their religiosity or their religiousness. Instead, he recognizes there is a genuine desire to know God. But in their ignorance, they're looking at, for him in all the wrong places. He uses their needs as stepping stones for communicating the gospel, and he proclaims to them what they are worshiping, as unknown. And as we go through this, Paul gives constructive engagement as well as corrective engagement. He's going to meet the Stoics and the Epicureans where they are. He's going to acknowledge the areas where, yes, here's what you believe. And then he's going to correct where they're wrong. And let's get you to a proper understanding of who God is. His basic thesis about the unknown God in verse 23 is developed through various arguments in verses 24 through 29. And as we saw last week, his message is primarily theocentric. 
It's about God. It's not a Christocentric message. It's not about Jesus per se, but it's about God the Father. Focusing on God's character. Focusing on God's revelation in nature through general revelation and focusing on God's relationship to humanity. And this forms the basic approach to people without a biblical heritage. Now, specifically, Paul is making the unknown God, the God of the scriptures, known to his audience. But he doesn't immediately respond to their questions about Jesus and the resurrection. He needs to address them at the level of their basic worldview assumptions and then be able to proclaim the risen Christ. His Christology, we could say, is grounded in a proper theology. There are some who would argue that in Acts chapter 17, Paul is over-contextualizing, or he's trying to find too much similarity. He's becoming too much all things to all people, and in doing so, he's giving up the truth of the gospel, when in reality, he's not. They would attest that Paul is sacrificing the Jewish Christian gospel at the altar of Greek philosophy to win favor with the Athenians. But as we saw last week, as we looked at the content of the message, Paul isn't sacrificing any of the message of the gospel. Others, on the other hand, would argue that Paul's categories come solely out of the Old Testament and Judaism. They would assert that Paul finds no points of agreement whatsoever with his hearers, only contrasts. And neither of these views fully grasps Paul's approach. His theology is firmly rooted in the Old Testament, in Judaism. He conveys the biblical revelation using the languages and the categories that his listeners would have understood without traveling down the slippery slope towards syncretism. That's the other side of the road, a ditch that we need to be careful for. That as we are trying to meet people where they are, we don't fall into the God is everything for everybody and we're all going to get to heaven eventually. There are certain aspects of this truth of the scriptures. There is the gospel. There are certain things that Paul brings up that he does not give any sort of backing down on. There are certain areas where he remains firm. And those areas of the scripture are areas that we need to stand firm in as well. But there are other things that as we seek to understand the culture that we can, need to take, do a better job of doing. Paul's strategy is going to involve both constructive engagement and corrective engagement of his hearers' beliefs and worldviews. Looking first at the constructive engagement. His primary arguments are going to touch points in Stoic teaching that are familiar. Paul is going to paint the true God in universal strokes as the God of the whole world who has graciously revealed himself to all of mankind through creation. And we would say, yes, that is absolutely true. 
And he expounds on this general revelation in three basic proofs that the Stoics would have agreed with. Looking at God as the maker and the maintainer of this cosmos. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. The Stoic philosophy would have recognized, okay, God made and God sustains. Paul brings up God's providential care of all nations that the Stoics would have recognized the gods do provide for mankind. God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined their times before appointed. As well as bringing up God's imminent relationship to mankind in verses 27 through 29. Though he be not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our beings, even as certain also of your own poets have said. And the Stoics listening would have agreed with Paul on all of these points. Now their concept of little g gods isn't the perfect concept of big g God that Paul is going to then correct and get them to understand. These arguments reflect on an Old Testament knowledge that Paul has, but the Stoics believed that God is the source of all life, little g God. The world is ruled by divine providence. The human race is one. The gods are near. Mankind is in kinship with him. The Epicureans also could have found several points of agreement, recognizing, yes, the gods if they are gods, then they must be alive. And if they are alive, then we can know them. Recognizing that the gods, if they are gods, they're self-sufficient and they don't need us for anything. And recognizing that gods, if there are gods, well, they made everything. They can't live in something we would make for them. Paul is intentionally using the philosophical language of his audience not just to find common ground, but his purpose is to transform, to change their worldview. What you're worshiping ignorantly, I'm going to declare to you. Paul doesn't just find the constructive, here's where we can agree, but he also corrects their understanding of God at a fundamental level. And he accomplishes this by positively confessing the God of the Scriptures, not by attacking their pagan doctrines. When you're looking for counterfeit bills, you go to a bank and they're trying to find counterfeit bills, how do they find the counterfeits? It's not because they study all of the counterfeits. You study the real thing. And because you know exactly what the real bill looks like, you are able to then, oh, this is a counterfeit. It's good, but it's a counterfeit. One of the previous churches we were in, I was talking with the financial secretary one day, and she got a call from the bank saying that the offering count was off by $5 because somebody had given a counterfeit $5 bill. 
Now, they didn't think that anybody in the church was, you know, making tens of thousands of counterfeit $5 bills to enter into circulation. And so they brought it and they showed her, here's the real thing. Here's how we know that this one is fake. And it was good. But Paul is not going to reach his audience by bashing everything that is wrong with them. By saying, you're wrong here, you're wrong here, you're wrong here, you're wrong here. How many of us like to be told we're wrong? Even when we are. And the more we're told we're wrong, what does that do to us? Tends to tense us up a little bit and causes us to stop listening to the person that we're talking to. And Paul is going to not by saying, here's where you're wrong, but here's who God is. Positively, this is what I believe about God. To the Epicurean vision of the gods as material in essence and detached from humanity, Paul is going to counter that not by saying, you Epicureans are wrong about this. He's going to instead say, listen, the God that I worship is actively and intimately involved in the world. The unknown God that you're worshiping that I'm declaring to you, that God is the creator and he is the Lord of the universe. That God is the providential ruler and that God in verse 31 is the judge. He is a God who is near to us. He is a God who desires that all should seek him. And he is a God who desires to enter into a personal relationship of accountability. Who is God positively? That's who I worship, Paul is saying. He's not saying, man, you guys think this, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. No, here's who God is. The Stoic idea of God is that it is an all-pervasive, impersonal logos, the cosmic principle of reason. To counter their thoughts, Paul proclaims a God that is personal, a creator who is transcendent, who is distinct from his creation, the Lord and judge who stands over the world instead of being fully expressed within it. Here's who God is. The Athenians had a claim of racial superiority. They thought that they were the master race. To them, Paul counters not by saying, you're wrong. He counters them by affirming positively, all human beings descended from one man, Adam. And that one man was created by God. Their worship of idols God doesn't dwell in temples made with man. God is not worshipped by our hands. God doesn't need our sacrifices. He's reinterpreting the words of the pagan poet. We are God's offspring, not in the pantheistic sense that everyone is God's offspring, but in the biblical sense that they are created in God's image which becomes the platform for his critique of pagan idolatry. If the living God made us in his image, we can't make gods out of lifeless objects. Who is God? He affirms that, yes, we are seeking God in verse 27, but not seeking him in the philosophical quest 
through which God could easily be known from examining nature, but rather he states that that type of philosophical quest is like a fumbling about in the darkness. You know, the idea and the concept being it's pitch black and you don't want to turn the lights on to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and you're fumbling around. And then he gives the evangelistic appeal. The summit of his speech comes in verses 30 and 31. He directs his audience to the focal point towards which his entire speech has been building, and that is simply this. Jesus, you know that question, explain Jesus to us. Here it is. That man whom God has raised from the dead is going to be the judge of the world making the unknown God known in a more specific way. And then he calls on his listeners to take the right course of action. Repent. Repentance of idolatry is needed to achieve the right relationship with God. Paul is here confronting the Athenians with the very crux of the gospel, and that is the fact that God can save us through the risen man, Jesus Christ. God's work in Jesus means that the time for Gentile ignorance is over. This time that God had winked at is done. But now all people everywhere need to repent. Whether one be an enlightened philosopher or a pagan idolater, Paul's speech, as one insists, is basically a call to repentance. A call for the Greco-Roman world to break decisively with its religious past in response to the one God who now invites all to be part of the renewed world. And as believers, there is a change in our life. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, our allegiance to the prince of this world, our allegiance to ourself is broken. And we are now in an allegiance to the God who made us. And there needs to be a change in how we live, a repentance from how we had been living for ourselves to now living for God. Salvation is not simply a matter of purifying or redirecting the pagan's natural view of God. Paul is not just speaking because they needed an education, but they needed a transformation. The fact that God is going to judge the world in righteousness and there is an appointed time for that implies that those listening are accountable to that God. Their ignorance is not bliss. If you leave tonight and you go north on 45 and you're a little tired, you want to get home, and pretty soon that speedometer reaches 70, 75, and the red and blue lights pull you over, and I'm sorry, officer, I didn't see a posted speed limit sign. Is that ignorance going to get you out of the ticket? Does that ignorance mean you are not responsible for it? No. And that's what Paul is saying. God will righteously judge. 
by the man whom he has appointed and raised from the dead. And what is the response? The same responses that we get when we share the gospel with others. Some were scornful. Paul, you're crazy. Some desired to hear more. Others embraced the message. So what are the implications for us today? This account gives us an instructive example to proclaim the gospel to a people for whom the biblical tradition is unfamiliar. And again, that is coming more and more common here, not just for missionaries around the world. So this record carries implication for our mission into the marketplaces that God sends us on a daily basis. Whether that be the marketplace of Aldi or the marketplace of our water cooler at work. We see Paul has a model of cultural sensitivity and adjustment to his audience. His demonstration of his awareness to the culture gains him the credibility and earns him the right to be heard. Paul respectfully engages their worldview, drawing upon their language, images, and concepts to communicate the gospel in a culturally relevant form. But at the same time, Paul refuses to compromise the truth. Paul engages the culture with the goal of transformation. There are some non-negotiables to Paul's message. The sovereign lordship of the creator and ruler of the nations indicates that there are no other gods. The universal need for repentance presupposes that there is sin and guilt that people need to repent of. The reality of a future judgment implies that we are morally accountable to that God. And the supreme revelation of God is in Christ, validated by his resurrection. The gospel itself is going to go against every culture. The gospel is going to offend. But the way we give the gospel doesn't need to be offensive. There's a perspective that Luke records for us for this. We see Paul's attitude. Paul was distressed about the idolatry that he finds, but he doesn't flatly condemn the pagans or their religious or philosophical systems. Instead, what does he do? He recognizes that the Athenians, their past and even their religious yearnings, have been touched by the grace of God. Because we are made in God's image, God has made us to worship him. And the world that is outside the doors of this building is a world that is worshiping God in ignorance. Whether it be the little g God of money, the little g God of self, the little g God of power or fame. And that time of ignorance is done. Judgment is coming, so as believers, we need to be giving the gospel to them. Paul's approach 
He is careful to prepare the ground to then present the good news to a biblically illiterate people. Only after he lays out the ba a basic biblical overview that God is the creator, ruler, and judge can Paul then address God's particular revelation in Jesus Christ. And Paul's answer, nothing in this passage gives any assurance that religious searching will result in the finding of the true God by themselves. And the same answer that Paul gives to those at the Areopagus is the same answer of the gospel today, and that is a repentance is necessary. One cannot continue living their life for themselves and worship God. They're mutually exclusive. This sermon that Luke records for us from Paul models a magnificent balance. Identifying the way that the gospel can be proclaimed in a way that the audience can understand but also transforming the society in which the gospel is given. The gospel changes us. And this challenge is still for us today. So as we go throughout our lives and God gives us opportunities in our marketplaces, do we understand the people that we are dealing with? It's going to be different if you're teaching in a classroom or if you're working a nine-to-five or if you're retired and just sitting around. I'm not going to say that phrase because I don't want to get in trouble. You're sitting around an assisted living type facility there. We'll say it nicely. God gives us people it puts them across our path that are ignorantly worshiping the little g gods of this world. Are we taking the opportunity to know who they are, to declare unto them the God that they should be worshiping, and giving them the plea to repent? to turn from how they are living to worship the true God. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you for this example that Luke records for us from the life of Paul. Lord, oftentimes we can, in our own minds, become closed off to giving the gospel to those who need it around us. But Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to those whom we come in contact with, those who we see on a regular basis, who are worshiping the gods of this world ignorantly. May we be able to declare you unto them in a way in which they understand calling upon them to repent and to turn from who they are worshiping to worshiping you. Lord, if there is one who's listening who has never repented of that false worship, who is, is not worshiping you, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would repent and give their life over to you. 
We ask these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.